Now turn with me please to Psalm 90. This is a very special psalm for Remembrance Sunday. Across our land today in Remembrance Services, both small and large, the words of Psalm 90, they'll be sung, they'll be read, they'll be used in prayer. <clears throat> I think it's a portion of scripture that's very suited for the solemnity of such national occasions of reflection and remembrance. And yet, you know, the great tragedy is the majority of those who'll hear it sung, who'll hear it read, will not understand the spiritual significance of it. This psalm was penned by Moses. If you have a Bible that uses the inscriptions, you will see that it was written by uh, Moses, the man of God. And it's fitting because he's one of the earliest penmen of Holy Writ. We have the record of a song that he penned in Exodus chapter 15 after the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea. But in contrast, this is a prayer. And of course, even our praise is prayer. It's believed that it was penned on the occasion of the sentencing of the children of Israel in the wilderness for their unbelief and their rebellion against God. Those who came up out of Egypt, God said they would die in the wilderness because of their unbelief. They refused to enter in. They refused to take possession of the land. And they uh, fomented rebellion and wanted to go back to Egypt. And so God said, okay, you can wander in the wilderness for the next 40 years. It's believed the historical incident to which the psalm referred to is found in Numbers chapter 14. You can look it up at home. Because the Israelites believed the, the report of the, the ten false spies and rejected the testimony of Caleb and Joshua. And they were so incensed, the, the children of Israel were so incensed against Moses and Aaron that they threatened to stone to death Moses and Aaron. And would that God had only intervened by appearing his glory in the tabernacle, they would have been done to death that day. And God said that day he was going to destroy Israel and he would start over again with them. He would start over again with Moses and Aaron. But Moses stood in the gap and he interceded for the children of Israel and the wrath of God was spared. But Israel was sentenced to 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Various commentators believe that Moses used this prayer Daily in the wilderness sojourn. And as such I think it would be ideally suited. As we pilgrimage to glory. It's not only suited for the Israelites of years gone by. It's suited for you and I. In our pilgrimage to Emmanuel's land. Much of the journey that we'll cross. From here to Emmanuel's land. Is one that's littered with graves. With, littered with graves. And strewn with sorrow. Old Matthew Henry put it like this. We may easily apply it to the years of our passage through the wilderness of this world. And it furnishes us with meditations and prayers very suitable to the solemnity of a funeral. So upon this Remembrance Sunday, this psalm presents to us something of the contrast between the fleeting nature of humanity and the endurability of Almighty God. It's very suitable to the solemnity of the day. 
Let's look at it. I'm not going to give you an outline. I'm just going to go down the verses and share it with you. Just little thoughts from the verses as we go down it with that theme in mind. So verse 1, we have the security which we have in the Lord. Lord, now it's in capitals. So in our King James authorised version, that means Jehovah. Jehovah, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. In generation on generation. It's important to remember this because the Israelites, they were now wandering in the wilderness and they felt insecure and open to the attack of their enemy. And indeed they would be attacked by their enemy many times. And Moses reminded them that as Jehovah had been their dwelling place for the generations gone by, he would be their dwelling place in the generations that lay ahead of them. A whole generation, 40 years, lay ahead of them. And that's what Moses said. As God has guided, he will continue to guide. They had been chosen. They had been chosen above all the other nations of the world. They were God's peculiar people. We go way back to the age of the patriarchs in the book of Genesis. And they were called by God's electing grace. From the godly line of Seth and Enos to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and all of their descendants. God had been with them. And had kept them in their constant wanderings. They were men who lived in tents. They never put down the roots. Instead permanent in one place. And the only place they were permanent. Was in Egypt where they were slaves. Does that not tell us something? Those who have roots only here. In this scene of time. They're slaves to the world. They're slaves to the culture. The idiom. the, The philosophies of the world. It's those who are God's pilgrim people. Who have a different destination and a different perspective. And God was going to keep them. Peter, uh, sorry, Stephen spoke about the church in the wilderness. In his great defense in Acts chapter 7. And so we have the, the, wild, the, the wanderings of the patriarchs. We have the wilderness wanderings of the Israelites. In the book of Exodus. The book of Numbers as they entered into the promised land. The book of Deuteronomy. And we have this wonderful promise that God would be their dwelling place. They dwelt in tents. And so they would have appreciated more than anybody else. That God was permanent. Everything that they had was temporary. But God was permanent. And I want you to get that today. Everything that you and I have. It's just temporary. It's just temporary. It's just here for a little time. Some of you, I'm sure most of you watched the part of the remembrance service at the the Cenotaph this morning. And it just struck us all, didn't it, that our late queen was no longer there. Although she had reigned for over 70 years and and had been there on most occasions in all of those years, she was no longer there. The thing that we thought permanent was only temporary. And that's just like your sojourn and my sojourn. We have a safe and secure dwelling place in God. Whatever troubles come or go, we're secure in Him. We are His people. We're His people. By grace, by covenant, we're His people. He has been with our forefathers in generations gone by. Generations gone by. Psalm 90 verse 1. And will He not be with us in the years to come? There's encouragement for us nationally here. We look at our land and it's surrounded 
It's surrounded by enemies. But you know, the greatest enemies are within our own land. The moral rot that is in our own land. The political instability that is in our own land. The financial crisis that is in our own land are far greater enemies than anything that is without our land. But still God has a remnant in this land. He has a people. And he has promised to be with us. Isaac Watts, who's the father of English hymnody, he paraphrased the words of Psalm 90, and he gives us that beautiful hymn that we sing so often here in Ulster. O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast, and our eternal home. Everything, everything that you put your hand to today is just temporary. It's only God that's eternal. Verse 2 reminds us of the unchangeability of God. He's the same God, Moses said, who was before the world began. That's an amazing statement. Away in eternity past, there was only God. Even before creation, there was only God as he dwelt in that triune existence. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There was communion in the Trinity, but there was nothing else. Before creation brought into being the mountains... Before creation brought into being humanity, God was and God will always be. He has no beginning. He has no ending. That's significant, the word that is used. He's Jehovah. That was the, the, the revelation of God to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14. He's the great I am that I am. He is the unchangeable, immutable God. And what a contrast is given here. Jehovah, the great, immutable, unchangeable God, who is forever the same, the great, unchangeable one, is contrasted with men. You and I, we are subject to change and decay. The smallest, sometimes the smallest events can have the biggest impacts in our lives and in the course of our life itself. But in contrast, God is eternal and he never changes. John Calvin put it like this, although he subjects the world to many alterations, he remains unmoved. Not wonderful. And that not only in regard to himself, but also in regard to the faithful, who find from experience that instead of being wavering, he's steadfast in his power, truth, righteousness and goodness, even as he was from the beginning. Now that brings comfort to all of our hearts today. There are many today, there are thousands, hundreds of thousands across our land today and they mourn the passing of loved ones from generations gone by. Those who joined the armed forces, who gave their lives for this land, it was all change. And their lives had never remained the same. But whatever changes we face today are in the days that lie ahead. Here's your encouragement and my encouragement in Christian, as Christians. Nothing can change our relationship to God. How firm a foundation ye saints of the Lord is led for his saints in his excellent word. We have a firm foundation. There's nothing in life. There's no trouble. There's no evil. There's no opposition can ever dislodge us from our relationship with God. But verse 3 reminds us of the certainty of death. Thou turnest man to destruction. The word here is dust. 
man will return to dust. That's not annihilation. There's no annihilation. This body of mine one day barring the second advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. It will go to dust. That is for sure. But the soul will go to God. Death is but the separation of the soul and the body. And all of those Israelites who had rebelled against God, they were going to go to the dust. They were going to go to the dust. I thought of that. Genesis 3.19, there are some, I know some very sincere Christians, they don't agree with the committal at a gravesite, but I have always used it as a committal because Genesis 3.19 tells me, In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground. For out of it thou wast taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. It's very humbling, isn't it, for all of us to think that we're just dust, and we're going to go back to the dust. The body will soon crumble, it'll soon decay. Oh, just how frail and fleeting it all is. How many thousands of young servicemen and women went out to fight for this nation of ours and they, and they never returned. And we remember them today. But we just don't remember the dead. I want you to remember you too and I also must die. It is a necessity. Verse 4 to 6, we learn about the immensity of eternity. Verse 4 draws a vivid comparison. I throw out the challenge here to all the mathematicians that are in the service. In God's estimation, a thousand years is just like yesterday. 24 hours over a thousand years is something like 8,600,000 hours. So just take 24 away from 8,600,000 hours. And that's just like yesterday to God. A watch in the night was but a few hours. Now a watch in the night was either a third of the night or a quarter of the night. The night hours was divided up into twelve. So three or twelve, uh, three or four hours. A thousand years just like three to four hours. And when you calculate the immensity of eternity, then you begin just to understand and to realize and to appreciate that our loved ones who have died before us and who have gone home to glory, they're just a step ahead of us. I tried to do the calculation yesterday, but I thought if I'd bring it to you today, it might just sound too fanciful. So you do the calculation yourself. The longest lives... They're but a moment in the light of God's eternity. And sometimes we can be lost in the immensity of it all. The vastness of it all. The greatness of it all. When it's contrasted with the frailty of life. Life just taken away as with a flood. We've watched those floods in Pakistan. And they take, they've taken away. The flood comes down the ravine, the mountainside. And it just sweeps away those bridges and those houses that have been there for generations. Just one flood sweeps it all away. That's just like death. Nothing can resist it or stop it. 
There's no point you and I boasting about tomorrow or, or, guarantee, or, or, or guaranteeing anything because there's no guarantee we'll be here at the end of the day, never mind tomorrow. It's compared to a night's sleep. It's compared to the grass which grows in the field. In the morning it flourishes, the flower in the field it flourishes and the evening it's cut down. That's just how transitory life really is. As we think about the immensity of eternity and the transit nature of life, we just realise, don't we, how quickly life is passing us all by. And soon it will be over. I think of all the young people that are here. We're, we're just so glad to see you. And we pray that you'll have many, many years ahead of you. But young people die as well. We think of that awful tragedy up in, outside Balamunu. That little boy, just two years of age, being killed on Friday. Young people die as well. Be ready whenever death calls for you. We think in verse 7 to 8 of the severity of God's judgment. Sometimes we present God in a very uh, out of focus uh, dimension. But God is a God of justice. He cannot overlook the breaking of his law. Moses lived to see the adult generation that came out of Egypt and remember, they came out of Egypt delivered by the blood of the Lamb. All of them died in the wilderness. They reckon that there were some over one to one and a half, two million people, something in around that calculation, that came up out of Egypt and made that wilderness a pilgrimage. Can you imagine all of the funerals that must have been attended to in the wilderness? That wilderness, that Sinai wilderness, it must be littered with the graves of hundreds of thousands of Israelites that died in the wilderness. It was a graveyard to them. Every mile that they travelled must have been a burying ground. And that's just like the world that we pass through. Generations upon generations have buried their dead in this world. We're walking literally on the bones of the dead and on the dust of the dead. Of generations gone by. We walk and move about. In a continual cemetery. You think of all of those who died in World War I. In World War II. You can go to those mass graves. In France and Belgium. Across Europe. Our brother Silas Gary. Was there just a few years ago. Putting up that wonderful memorial. With all of those thousands of names. On them. Many of those young men never got back home. They were buried in foreign fields and foreign lands. Can you think of the pending judgment of God upon sin? Our secret sins are ever before God in the light of his countenance. That's what it says. You think you're hiding that sin? And no one else sees it, but God sees it and will hold you accountable for it. What a day the judgment day will be. We read it that day in Second Peter chapter three. Could you just go there for a little second? Second Peter chapter three, verse eight. Second Peter chapter three, verse eight. 
It says, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. What manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. That's the judgment day. What a day it's going to be. I urge you today, be diligent that you're found in Christ today. Be diligent that you're found with Christ Because if you face God in the judgment out of Christ, you'll be consigned to that eternal fire of which 2 Peter chapter 3 reminds us. Verse 9 to 11 in Psalm 90 reminds us again of the uncertainty of life at best. Look at the calculation that's made. Psalm 90, verse 9. For the days, for all our days are past, Away in thy wrath. We spend our years as a tale that is told. <clears throat> the days of our years are three score years and ten. Now, there's no guarantee that you'll get to the three score years and ten, which is seventy. And if by reason of strength they be four score years, yet is their strength labour and sorrow, for it's soon cut off and we fly away. The life of Moses was <clears throat> really consigned to segments of forty. The first forty years of his life. He really was brought up in the luxury of Egypt. He was a prince of Egypt and in the household of Egypt. The second 40 years of his life he spent in the backside of the desert looking after sheep and flocks. And the last 40 years of his life were the toughest and the hardest of all. For he led the murmuring children of Israel through the wilderness and brought them to the boundaries of the promised land. The first 40 years he thought he was everything. The second 40 years, God taught him he was nothing. The third 40 years, God taught him that he was everything, which were the toughest years of all. Now, brethren and sisters, sometimes we imagine that as the older we get, the easier it gets. But it's not like that. The older you get, actually, the harder it gets. Moses had to carry the greatest burden in his latter life. But in his latter life, to counteract that, he saw God at his greatest intervening in his life. So even though in our latter years we have to carry the greatest burdens, I just want to encourage you, like Moses of old, in our latter years we'll see God's greatest demonstrations of his power and his intervention uh, even within our lives. He talks here about labour and sorrow. That's significant. Labour and sorrow. Each day brought its own labour. The labour there meant toil, burden. Each day brought its own burden, brought its own sorrow, brought its own toil. 
The great men of the word of God knew trouble, what trouble was. The man who knew most about trouble, I think, in the Bible and wrote about it was Job. Nine times in his book he refers to it. He introduces it, chapter 326. I was not in safety, neither had I rest, neither was I quiet, yet trouble came. And trouble comes. And trouble will come to your life and my life, to your home and to my home, even though we're not looking for it, and even though we're living in quiet and at peace with everyone else, yet trouble comes. That's life. That's the pilgrimage that we're passing through. Job went on to say in chapter 14 and verse 1, Man that is born of a woman is a few days and full of troubles. Born unto trouble. Chapter 5 verse 7, as the sparks fly upwards, trouble and life go together. And from our infancy, when we're born until we are put in the inside of the coffin and in the grave, we'll have to face trouble. Be ready. Be ready because life is so uncertain at best. We don't know what troubles it will bring to us this day, even this week. Verse 12 reminds us of the commodity that's to be desired above all others. So teach us to number our days. In the light of this, let's make the calculation. Let's apply our hearts unto wisdom. It just simply means cause our hearts to come to wisdom. This wisdom that is spoken about <coughs> refers to the grace of God, the, the grace of God, the salvation of God. There's no other book speaks more about it than the book of Proverbs. In our English translation in the book of Proverbs, there's 54 references to wisdom. There's no excuse for Christians to be acting foolishly because God time and time and time again emphasizes our need of wisdom, his wisdom, his grace. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now listen that. If you despise the grace of God, God says you're but a fool. But a fool. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 9 and 10. And the knowledge of the holy is understanding. Now if you look at wisdom in the New Testament. It's presented as the gospel. Paul spoke of such wisdom. In 1 Corinthians 1, 23, 24. He said we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews. A stumbling block. Uh, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them that are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. If you want to know the wisdom of God, look at Calvary. Look at the cross where Jesus suffered and bled and died. And here we see the God-man, the great mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, and he's bearing our burdens, the burdens of sin. He's suffering and by his stripes we're being healed. And the Lord today would have you to apply your heart unto such wisdom. Cause you, as you look at your days, how brief and fleeting they really are, cause you to come to the knowledge of God and the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no wisdom in this world. You can search for wisdom all over this world, but you'll not find it. I was saddened last night at the remembrance service from London. 
that they had a Hindu lady on quoting a Hindu prayer. This was wisdom. There's no wisdom outside the word of God. Sadly, we see the awful state, spiritually speaking, that our nation is in, even in the national events. I, I, I thought last evening it didn't take long after the Queen's death for things to change. The wisdom of the Bible, the gospel has been set aside. We're looking for wisdom in the mysticism of Eastern religions. Verse 13 to 15 reminds us that we have an opportunity to be saved. Verse 13, Moses prayed again, Return, O Lord, how long, and let it repent thee concerning thy servants. This is a prayer for God to have pity upon them. Verse 14, he prayed early in the morning that they would experience God's covenant loyalty. That's what is spoken about there. The mercy of God. The word just means his covenant loyalty. Have you experienced it yet? Do you know it yet? Do you know his mercy, his pity, his grace? Verse 15, he prayed, Make us glad according to the days wherein the host afflicted us and the years wherein we have seen evil. The affliction, the evil, and yet the contrast. Lord, you can make us glad. And all the sadness that's round about us, all the graves that are round about us, all the death that is round about us, where is our gladness? Where is our happiness? It's in God. Happy is the people whose God is the Lord. And verse 16 to 17, we'll close with this. We learn, and I, I put it like this, about the perpetuity of God's covenant. God's covenant faithfulness is to be traced from generations to generation. So Moses prayed, let thy work appear unto thy servants and thy glory unto their children. <clears throat> the, the generation that came up out of Egypt, they wanted to go back into Egypt because they said their children were going to die in the wilderness. They didn't die in the wilderness. It was their parents that died in the wilderness. And it was that generation that went in and took occupation of the promised land. They saw the glory of God. The glory of God in giving them victory over their enemies within the promised land. They saw the glory of God. We have so much to be thankful for as, as Christians. I, I stopped to think over the weekend again of all those generations gone by in my own family. I, I thought of a, a godly mother. And of a father who in his latter years came to know the Lord. I thought of a godly grandmother and grandfather. I thought of great grandparents. Covenant engagements and blessings. It takes us back to Genesis 17. Because this was the promise that was made to Abraham. Abraham fell on his face and God talked with him. It's a good place to be in your face before Almighty God, dear Christian. And God said to him, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be called Abraham. 
for a father of many nations have I made thee, and I'll make thee exceedingly fruitful, and I'll make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant. We're still that generation, eh, brethren and sisters. We're still part of the generations that God's covenant was made with Abraham. All of those succeeding generations right down to this very present time. We are that covenant seed. And we're to care and we're to provide for our children and we're to pray that the glory of God would appear unto our children and that the beauty of the Lord, Jehovah God, would be upon us and on the generation that is to come. That gives us responsibilities as a church and as families. Spiritually you're to look after those children. They're God's covenant seed. You're to look after them. You're to teach them and nurture them in the things of God. You're to lead them and guide them in the pathways of truth. What a responsibility lies upon every godly mother, every godly father here today. As a congregation, we are to nurture them, love them, be patient with them. Love them for the Lord. Encourage them in the services of God. I want you, I did put it up on Facebook. I rarely recommend links on Facebook, but this one I will recommend. I put it up last evening. <coughs> a podcast between Pastor Puyan Mershake and the Reverend Paul Thompson from Antrim. And they're talking about children in church, encouraging parents to bring their children to church. And I would encourage every young parent to listen into that and I encourage every older Christian to listen into it too we'll not extend what we're going to say on it but I just encourage you to listen into it we're praying let the beauty of the Lord our God appear unto our children unto their children's children our generation which came home from the battlefield hadn't such high hopes that they had fought the last great war, that there would be no more world war again. <clears throat> but we look out today, and Europe is teetering on the brink of war. We have watched the invasion by Russia of Ukraine. We see the thousands that have been killed in it, the massive destruction that has been wrought in it, just through vain ideologies. And the rest of Europe looks on in an uneasy peace. We're just one incident away, brethren and sisters, from World War III again, starting in Europe. But in the midst of all of the threats, in the midst of all of those doomsday scenarios, my mind goes back to this prayer of Moses, the man of God, in Psalm 90. <clears throat> Our days are uncertain. But we have a faithful covenant-keeping God who's from everlasting to everlasting. And today we do remember with thanksgiving 
the many hundreds of thousands of young men and women who died fighting Nazism and fascism in Europe and terrorism at home and who still maintain the peace and the safety of our, of our borders. But let's remember in the midst of it all the covenant-keeping God of Psalm 90. And let us pray for peace and let us pray for the beauty of the Lord our God to rest upon us and for his work and for his glory to appear unto our children. The last verse of O God or help in ages past that the hymn writer penned is very uh, familiar to the first verse that he wrote but it's just slightly different. O God our help in ages past our hope for years to come be thou our guard while troubles last and our eternal home. There will always be troubles. To the day we were called home to glory there will always be troubles. But be thou our guard while troubles last and our eternal home. Amen. May the Lord bless his word today to all of our hearts sanctified by a spirit to you.